Hey everybody, welcome to Typology. Ian Cron here coming to you from Typology Studios in the 12 South neighborhood of Nashville, Tennessee. I'm joined by my confrere, my friend, my dear, dear brother, Anthony Skinner. Ian Cron, good to see you today. We were together last night. We were. Let's talk about that. Okay, we went, this was my first really kind of party yeah. since COVID. Since COVID, yep. And there was, it was packed. It was a great re-entry, wasn't it? It was. It was for our dear friend, Katie Williams. Her husband, Randy, threw a party for her 40th birthday. And it was really an assemblage of people, wasn't it? Oh. Everybody from Kep Mo, yeah. uh, the great uh, the great artist Kep Mo, to four or five people who were there who've all been on the show yeah, before. Former Bart, guests. Yeah. Bart Millard was yeah. on the show from Mercy Me and yeah. Jill Phillips. And, of course, Randy and Katie have been on the show. Dolly showed up. Dolly showed up. That was something, wasn't it? I mean, this. Oh, all right, let's just get this. Let's just dial this in a little bit more yeah. for people. A Dolly impersonator right. showed up right. and uh, like just sang for Katie and humiliated her. Yeah. For a good twenty minutes. Yeah. Randy joined in. They That's did the, right. They did the Kenny Rogers duet. They did, and the whole room sang "Islands in the Stream." Katie is on the panel of sixes. Yes. Y'all should check that one out. Randy yeah. is on the panel of nines. Awesome. That one's great as well. Yeah. Uh, like you said, lots of former guests. Bart was on. He's a six. Yep. Bart yeah. Millard. And also... Uh, it's good to see him. And there were a couple other people there, musicians. And I, I just love this town. Yeah. yeah there's just oh, so many rich. interesting people. Yeah. So many interesting people. I have a question for you. Yeah. Have you seen a movie that you really love lately? Uh, a couple things, I would say. A couple? Yeah, just watched Green Zone again for the second time and Broadchurch. Love that. I, I How just, about you? Well, I just saw uh, Derek uh, Del Gaudio's In and of Itself. I haven't heard of this. Tell me about it. Oh, it, it it's actually was done originally as live theater. Okay. And it's taped in front of an audience. Mm-hmm. It is really extraordinary. It's all about identity. And it, it's so powerful. Ooh, I have to see this. Yeah, in and of itself. And you got to watch it in one sitting. You can't break it up. Did you watch it online or did you go somewhere? It's streaming. I think it may be on Hulu. Okay. Something like that. All hey, right. and I got one more for you. I'm doing that, yeah? All right. You Have you seen the show F1? Yes. About Formula One racing? Yes. Can I just say something? I have absolutely zero interest in cars. I yeah. could not stop watching it. Yeah, it's killer. I could not th- that whole universe. It's amazing. Now speaking of films, yeah, we have another exciting announcement. We do. It's not as interesting as in and of itself or F1. However, oh, it's still pretty good. Yeah. For the next few days, folks can get my Enneagram course, True You, a deeper exploration of your Enneagram type, Anthony. Yes. For just $97. $97. That is amazing. Right. If they sign up before Monday night, June 14th, they're not only going to get the discount. But there's two amazing bonuses. Tell us about those. Right. Well, the first one is you'll get instant access to a recorded Q&A session hosted by moi. On your Enneagram type, and I, during which I answer all kinds of questions from folks uh, uh, on how to use the Enneagram as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then number two, this is great. Folks will get a free one-month trial 
to my brand new membership experience. Okay. This okay. is packed too. This is packed with really good stuff. Right. So if you're a member of our subscription service, right, you get an exclusive podcast episode. You get a curated newsletter from me. And best of all, this is the thing I love most, mm-hmm. is you get an invitation to our live town hall Q&A session with me and the other folks who are part of the of the membership subscription community it's really great people get to come on ask you questions sometimes other people jump in and they get to weigh oh, in yeah. uh with with a question someone else asks. so all you have to do is go to typologyinstitute.com forward slash true you all one word to sign up that's right and it's i think it's i'm proud of the film right it ain't in, a, in and of itself but it's still pretty good <laughs> you're selling yourself short this is great well, anyway, again, go to typologyinstitute.com forward slash true you now to sign up. All right. So let's talk about our guest today. Ooh, this was a great conversation. This is a guy's name is Ryan Casey Waller. And I loved and I mentioned this in the show, right? When I got his press kit, it says Ryan Casey Waller is the pastor, quote unquote, the pastor who showed up drunk to church. And I thought, book him. <laughs> Book him. He's in. We've, we've got to get him on the show. He's my kind of guy. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, he has written a great new book that I've read. It's called Depression, Anxiety, and Other Things We Don't Want to Talk About. He's a therapist. He's an Episcopal priest. Uh, he has firsthand experience talking about mental illness and uh, the struggles that so many folks have that particularly in the church, we need to start getting comfortable yes, talking that's about. Right, that's right. He's articulate. He knows the Enneagram super well. He's yeah. an Enneagram too. I I just thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. It's filled with moving moments and also some pretty funny moments. And Wendy, who is part of the Ian Cron team, she called me today freaking out over this interview. She was like, I love this interview with Ryan. She's a two as well. Look, so. I mean, listen, how can you not love a guy <laughs> a pastor who showed up drunk to church right right, right yeah. all right well let's get let's get online with the drunk vicar and uh see what he has to say to us ladies and gentlemen my new friend ryan casey waller author of the book depression anxiety and other things we don't want to talk about ryan welcome to the show uh thank you so much so happy to be here you are an Enneagram 2. Uh, you're not only a psychotherapist, pastor, co-sufferer, you're also a lawyer. Uh, and uh, that is interesting to have both a, mm-hmm. a lawyer and a priest on the line, isn't it? Yeah, totally. Wow. Fantastic. You studied uh, at the University of Southern California at Southern Methodist University. You're clearly a bright guy. I can't wait to jump into uh, this book and how you're using your self-knowledge that gained from the Enneagram and now as a self-identified Enneagram 2, the helper, uh, and how that has helped you on your journey. Okay, in just a couple of sentences, on the elevator pitch, give us the crux of the message of the new book. Mm. The crux of the message is that mental health is health, and we all have it. And so we can ignore it, we can mistreat it, we can take care of it. Uh, No matter what, though, we can't deny that it exists. And for those that are in faith communities, for those who struggle with their mental health, I want them to know 
that it's not uh, necessarily a faith issue. It's not necessarily a sin issue. It's a health issue. And that God has given us all manner of forms of healing. And those of us who are Christians, if we battle any kind of mental health issue, it is more than okay to raise our hand and say so and avail ourselves to the many resources that God has given us for our healing. Oh, man, that sounds, mm. that sounds pretty good. Okay, there's always a story behind the story, brother. So yeah. what I want to know is what was your particular experience that led to some journey of healing, it sounds like, that mm-hmm. was the impulse behind writing the book? Yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, so to back it up, when I was a kid, I think I, I, I battled depression and anxiety pretty much my entire life. It went unidentified, undiagnosed. Um, even though I had parents who were very attentive and when I would say things as a kid, like, Hey dad, I feel like the world is, is moving too fast. Or I had real intense anxiety around school and sports. Parents were very attentive. They'd ask me questions. They would be with me. They would talk to me. They would make me feel safe, but it was the eighties and it wasn't just kind of, I think the natural thing to do, at least not here down in, in Dallas, Texas to, to take me off to a therapist. And so I struggled with these issues of depression and anxiety all the way um, until my early 30s when I began to have panic attacks, just some really, really serious panic attacks where I finally said, okay, enough is enough. I need to avail myself to some treatment. Got in to see a psychiatrist, began doing the work of psychotherapy, added in the, the mix of medication. And I had this moment, um, not immediately, But a few months into it where I was like, oh, my goodness, I actually don't have to live this way. I didn't know that the pain that I was experiencing, these troubles, that there was treatment that could help dissipate these symptoms. And so I experienced sort of my own healing there. Well, fast forward a few years, I get myself into a place where I'm working in the church, pursuing another graduate degree. And I get myself just completely uh, burned out and fail to continue to seek out the treatment that I need to to keep myself in a healthy mental space. And I get to the point where I begin to use alcohol as my primary coping mechanism, which leads to this moment that I describe in the book where I go to church for a Sunday evening service and I'm completely intoxicated. And it's the most embarrassing worst slash now looking back, maybe best moment of my life, because it was one of those moments where it's like, all right, uh, something's really, really out of whack here. And you need to step back and uh, seek a higher level of care, which is what I did. And it became sort of this great falling upward, uh, to use Richard Rohr's language moment for me, um, where I really suffered Um, some serious humiliation and some recognizing that, look, what I'm doing and what I'm chasing, what I'm pursuing is not working anymore. And I've got a choice whether to either lean back into that and keep going or really spend some time figuring out who I am, what I want to be about and how I can get healthy. And so that was the point for me, which I, you know, jumped into my own healing. Um, Mm. But in between those two incidences of, of, of experiencing depression and anxiety the first time and then having the big sort of breakdown, if you will, in between that, 
I had begun to pursue this counseling degree because I was realizing that there were so many people in faith communities like me who battled depression and anxiety, but were very weary of raising their hand and saying that that was the case and seeking out help because of the deep stigma. So now um, I'm very vocal about this and wanted to write the book to not only share my own story um, of suffering, but also because I want others to know they're not alone in this. And I want to battle that stigma that really, that really is still there, particularly in the Christian community about mental health and mental illness. It's mm. great. You know, this is a very timely message and one that's being picked up in a lot of uh, segments of our, our world. I recently just listened to a podcast. If you haven't heard it with uh, Prince Harry and Dax Shepard, did you hear that mm. episode? Man, I've, I've heard bits and pieces of it. I love I love Dax's podcast, and, and I, I write about Prince Harry uh, in, in the book when he, you know, first years ago kind of rose his hand and was able to say, like, look, I've, I've battled with this. So, but I haven't heard that episode. Yeah, check it out, because it's really great. And some of what he talks about is what you're talking about, albeit from not from a faith perspective, but just from a societal perspective. Uh, and uh, his own struggle with anxiety and depression and uh, mental health issues as a result of growing up and just, you know, probably with the craziest family in the history of the world. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Ian, I say that in the book. I'm like, look, if if Prince Harry, right, who comes from like the most buttoned up family, seriously, like in the history of the world, is able to say like, you know, any of us can suffer from this. And the reality is we've all got to tend to it. Then who among us, right, can say like, oh, that's not something we do in my family or, right, that, that I, I can't. Like, come on, this is the most rigid structure ever. And if this guy's willing to do it, right, we've all got to be able to take that lead as well and um, not be above it. All right. I just want to sort of weigh in uh, at the risk of not, not wanting to be uh... – to, to self-referencing, but just to make maybe a qualification for our people. When I first got sober in 1987, um, directly following it, I fell into a five-year depression mm-hmm. uh, that also, which was not diagnosed correctly, it was diagnosed as a generalized anxiety disorder because uh, a central feature of it was panic attacks. And, mm-hmm. you know, back then, I think, you know, it was sort of the advent of new medications for depression right around that time. It was Prozac, the new SSRI sort of class of, of medications. And uh, they tried everything for five years. None of it worked. Uh, and then, um, sadly, that's also where I was first introduced to benzodiazepines like Xanax and Clonopin, which eventually ended me up in treatment uh, down the, you know, years down the road after it. But um, because it went from being a prescribed medication to something else. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, uh, but so I have some kind of a background in it. And of course, in 1987, in the faith-based world, this was a conversation nobody wanted to have. And right. in fact, I can remember going to church, you just need to pray more. Mm-hmm. You know, you just need to be a better Christian or there's something so broken about you that let's just not talk about it. You know, uh, and I, I had to, you know, go find help in lots of other places, but I didn't find it in the church. That's for damn sure. Um, yeah. And I, you know, um, it, it was a time of, of not only you, it was like what's called the second arrow. You have the first you get shot first with the arrow of depression and anxiety. And then it's followed by the second arrow, which is being shamed by yourself and by your community for having 
depression and anxiety, right? right? I mean, you end up getting shot twice in the same wound, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, So I I empathize, and that's why I'm excited about this book. If you know, here we are, all these decades later, and it's hard to believe that the church can be so. I mean, fail. I mean, the society fails in this regard, but you know. It, the church fails too. I, and I appreciate you saying that. And here's what, here's what really kills me. Like, so you're describing that in the eighties. So back up just a couple of years, I'm working, I'm in the Episcopal church and, you know, people would come to my office and I know you're an Episcopal priest as well. And they would come in and they would describe to me, right. Just the situations that they were in that were extreme. And I know what they were wanting, right. They were wanting to have someone to express it to. And what they were hoping from me, I think, was some sort of prayer or, or some sort of blessing that could come into the situation and offer some hope and, and some healing. And so often, though, what I would hear is I would say, you know, it, it sounds to me like you might be experiencing some depression or it sounds to me like your anxiety maybe has risen to the level of being clinically significant or, or tell me again how much you're, you're drinking, you know, and and, and I would say, I wonder, would you consider, um, you know, speaking to a professional? Have you ever thought that? And instantaneously, what would so often happen is that a situation that they were describing as dire would all of a sudden not be that bad. They would mm. say, oh, oh, no, 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 no. You know, it's not, it's actually, it's actually, it's actually not, not that bad, Father. I, I just, you know, or, or they would say, you know, that's just not something uh, we do in, in, in my family or no, no, no. I really think it's just that I'm not spending enough time, right. Working on my relationship with God, or there would be a few people that would say, Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, do you have a referral list? Do you have somebody that, that I can call? And I would say, well, yeah, I, I do. You know, I've got multiple, here you go. And then almost inevitably they returned to my office, you know, weeks or months later and the same issue would still be there. And I would ask, well, hey, did you go and call, you know, so-and-so? And almost 100% of the time, the answer would be, no, no, you know, I didn't. And it, it just happened over and over again. I thought, oh, my goodness. We are just still in this place where people are not getting the help they need in the church because there's such a strong narrative it's exactly the narrative you got in the eighties where it's like, man, you just need to read your Bible more or you need to get, you know, get down on your knees. And it's like, uh, this is the exact opposite. I think of what Jesus has in mind, uh, for, for healing for these kinds yeah. of issues. So, well, we're going to circle now to the Enneagram, but before we do, I, uh, I had a, a moment that was so interesting. I, this is years ago, but, um, I, uh, um, had a, a fella back when I was more active in parish life and he came, came to see me and he struggled with taking medication for depression and he needed it. I mean, this was not mm. somebody that someone just threw 20 milligrams of Prozac at because, you know, they, they were lazy. You know, the therapist was lazy, really needed it. And, um, and I said to him at one point, you know, um, every time you have to take medication in the morning, you, you know, I want you to hold the tablet in your hand and think of it as Eucharist. Mm. because in in that pill is thousands of years of believers who had prayed for a solution. Mm. That's beautiful. And man. it was unavailable to them at the time. And and you are holding the sum of the commu- the the those members of the communion of saints who prayed for healing. You are holding 
an aid, maybe mm. not the complete solution, but an aid to your own healing. And that sort of changed his mind mm. about about medication. And um, That's beautiful. Yeah, it's one of four moments when I said the right thing in my life. <laughs> 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 uh. Anyway, you're an Enneagram too. And I was so fascinated because kind of your bottom out, right, is here you are, you're in a church, you're working your ass off, no doubt, uh, like most pastors do. You have burned out, which sounds like a common Enneagram 2 journey on helping Mm -hmm. other people. I guess that's part of it, right? And uh, you turn to alcohol. I would say that in my experience, the, the numbers that have sort of the the biggest proclivity to uh, addictions, although all nine are certainly capable of being addicts. Twos, fours, sevens, eights, and nines. Mm-hmm. Uh, for twos, um, to well, I'll leave it up to you. But so, was your being an Enneagram two, perhaps not aware of it at the time? Was it contributing to the journey that you were on of struggling with mental health, maybe not getting the help that you needed, and uh, turning to alcohol as a self-medicating or self-treatment plan that wasn't working out for you? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think that understanding now, using the two, right, as the lens for for what was going on there, I absolutely... um, you know, really, really enjoy other people needing me desperately, right? And so being able to to provide that and, and being needed, um, uh, I, I, I need it. That's where I'm like finding, you know, self-worth. And so like I have the predisposition to the anxiety and the depression. Um, but I think what was really beginning to happen was in my mind, I was going above and beyond. I was striving like nobody's business, right, to do what I thought was really helpful for not only the people I was serving, but my family, the community, trying to kind of strive on all these different levels. And what I didn't realize at the time is that I wasn't being appreciated in the way that I felt like I should be appreciated. And I had anger about Mm -hmm. it. And I didn't deal with the anger and what the alcohol was doing for me as I reflected on it is that I would get to the end of the day and I would feel burned out and I would feel so, so freaking frustrated and I didn't know what to do with the anger. So instead of like lashing out about it, I thought, well, when I drink a little bit, I'm a little less angry, right? And so instead of trying to understand at the time and I couldn't see it at the time, that it was that I needed to express my, my, my need for appreciation, but I was unable to identify my need, which is why this too really helps me make sense of that. I was just sort of stuffing it down until eventually, as anyone who knows, whether you're battle alcohol for 30 years or two years or your, or your whole life, like you abuse a substance, like it's going to come out, it's going to come out sideways at, at, at some point. Mm-hmm. Unless it obviously, it obviously did for me. But the two, looking at my life in that way, helped me understand that kind of what I thought was so like um, righteous, I guess, like this desire like to, to help, 
mostly, um, maybe not entirely, but a, but a big per- part of that was me just trying to uh, be loved and be accepted and have self-worth. I need these people to need me. And not just that, I need them to tell me and show me with the same amount of passion, right, that I'm helping them. I need that reciprocated. And that wasn't happening. And I was and I was mad about it. Mm. But what I love about what you said, again, is, you know, and I've said this to other guests before when I see it, right, which is, man, self-awareness really works. Self-knowledge really, really works. The Enneagram is not a perfect roadmap for exhaustive self-knowledge, but it's a useful tool that might begin you on a journey toward increased self-awareness of what some of the underlying issues are that are driving anxiety, depression, among other things, uh, right, addictions, etc., in, in your experience, how can the Enneagram help people who are wrestling with issues of mental health? Yeah. So here, here's, here's how it helps. So often I think people, um, they come in, you know, to my office and they're looking for a, a solution, right? As if there is one particular answer that's going to unlock Right. Mm-hmm. And get and get to the root of the problem, so to speak, whatever that problem is or, 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 or difficulty. And what I love about the Enneagram is what it does is it allows a, a person to have better insight and awareness into the multitudes that exist within them. Mm-hmm. Like as um, I believe it was Richard Rohr who said, and I think it was on your podcast, he talked about, you know, or this could be your language, forgive me if it's yours and not his, but this idea that the Enneagram is kind of sort of best understood as a, as a lens by which to understand one's soul. And so not even necessarily as a, hey, so like I'm a two and that means like that's my identity, like that, that's who right. I am. What the two helps me do, what these numbers help people do is notice all the nuances within themselves. And so once they begin to notice all the nuances within themselves, then that gives us a vehicle, right, to move into the various situations that are going on in their lives and to understand and to get rid of this sort of myth that you're going to come in and find the one thing that we're going to push that and boom, everything's going to be better. To me, what I like about the Enneagram is that it's realistic about the complexities of these issues with mental health. You know, it's, 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 it's rarely ever one thing, like you were even saying right. a moment ago when you were so beautifully talking about medication as, as being the Eucharist, you know, it, or acting as the Eucharist. You know, it is an aid. But, but, but this medical model that we've seemed to kind of wholly bought, in, bought into, and I'm not against the medical model, it's just too reductionistic right. by its very nature. You know, for some people, yes, um, maybe they're experiencing, you know, they've got major depressive disorder and we do the antidepressant and we do see a significant reduction in symptoms and they pretty much can then function at the level that they want to. That, that does happen for some people. For most people, it, it doesn't. We truly have to take in a more holistic approach right. where we're looking at the biology, the environment, right? Their relationships, their spirituality, what they do for fun. And what I like is that the Enneagram says, look, we're not going to try and make this really simple and just and, and reduce this down to something that we can fix in three to five sessions. And with this amount of medication, it says, no, you are a very complicated uh, person. 
and you have a lot of needs, a lot of desires, and you are a person that is also, not only do you have sort of a fixed identity, but you are also in constant change. Yes. So, mm-hmm. right? And so, and everyone that you're in relationship is also a person that's in constant change. Mm-hmm. And so we have to have an awareness as best we can of those multitudes. And that's then where we get into not only actually dealing with the, the mental health issues that arrive, but that's how we thrive and how we come alive and live lives that are worth living, live, get into that abundant life that's promised to us, you know, by Jesus himself in scripture. So, so I mean, this is so powerful. I <clears throat> often will confuse people when I say, um, you know, you're not your Enneagram type. <laughs> right, they, you are not a two. You are mm-hmm. not a four. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Your personality, whether you like it or not, is a set of adaptive stratagems that you adopted as a small person. Yes, temperament and disposition have something to do with it, but uh, it is a set of unconscious adaptive stratagems that you came up with to navigate the world of relationships and to cope with real primary trauma. Right, and. Uh, the truth of the matter is, when you over-identify your identity with your personality, you are actually in trouble because you are not your personality. You, There is behind your personality, and we would say essence, but I would say essential self, mm-hmm. uh, the self that was there before the world got its hands on you. Right. That that yearns to emerge. But first, we got to deconstruct the games of this personality so that we can uh, begin to, um, you know, find touch again with the essence of who we truly are, which through a Christian lens would be uh, a child of God. Uh, And realizing, too, as you said, that your personality is not fixed. It's not a fixed set of traits because human beings are not things. They're processes. Yes. Right. Yes. And so, you know, it's when you're doing your own personal work, you remember you're also a moving target. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Right. So let's be honest about that. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. Let's be honest with it. So so when I say you're not your type, people look at me like, well, wait a minute. You're saying I'm a seven. No, I'm saying (laughs) you're not a seven. You're not a seven. What we just uncovered is what you think is who you are, but it's not. Oh man, it, that, it's so good. It's so good. And uh, that is really helpful too, to understand um, when you say that human beings like are, are not things, you know, we are, we are processes. When you get people that are really in a deep, dark, you know, depressive state, which, which, which I know you understand because you've been there, right? One of the worst parts about it, or we know we're getting into real trouble when we begin to not have the ability to construct a future because the pain mm-hmm. itself feels as though it is static. It's not right. going away. Yep. Where I'm at today is where I'm going to be tomorrow. Probably tomorrow is actually going to, in fact, be worse. And then it's only going to get worse from there, which is then we really get into the, to the dangerous um, places. But if we can, if we can slow that thinking down and help people understand that they are not a thing, that they are a, a, a process, right? Then that allows for us to actually um, put hope uh, into play. 
where hope is not just this sort of ephemeral, like there's hope, but we can use hope as the axe of like, if you are changing, right, then that truly leaves possibilities uh, that you think perhaps are not possible, right? Um, for chapters that you think cannot be written. Well, if you're in constant change, then then we're admitting like, it ain't gonna be the same tomorrow. Mm-hmm. So that sometimes all I, all we need is that little kind of divot to get inside there mm. to start to fight back against this lie that the depression is always going to be there. It's never going to look any different. And the only way out of this is unconsciousness. Mm. Mm. That is so good. You know, uh, Ryan, one of the things I've been working with lately and as a therapist myself, not only thinking through, okay, well, I do think that each type, and again, I don't like to use labels too much. I know that that's unhelpful, diagnostic labels. But I do think each type has particular tendencies toward different um, kind of uh, mental health struggles, mm-hmm. uh, and which is helpful to know if, whether you are that type or you're happening to be in relationship with that type, right? So, for example, you know, let's face it, there are uh, among let's say twos, codependency, twos and nines, codependency would not be an unusual sort of issue that's happening in, in their lives, or there's addiction to relationships, finding either self-esteem or uh, merging with a, with another personality, right? Another person uh, for the nine threes, sometimes threes and sevens, narcissistic tendencies, right? Mm. Uh, For fours, you know, um, issues around abandonment uh, is almost universal for fours. Depression, very often seen in fours and in fives, but but for very different reasons. Fives have sort of a natural tendency, I think, at times to sort of teeter on the edge of nihilism, right? They, they, mm-hmm. they, you know, it's like that's why they're at the bottom of the Enneagram. Between mm-hmm. the five and the four, that gap is often called the void because fours and fives can both fall into that. So fives wrestle with depression for different reasons than fours do. It's because they get to the end of their intellect and real think to themselves, everything's meaningless. Mm. Everything, mm. everything has, you know, they, they're, they're the ones who read too much Nietzsche and fall through the cracks. <laughs> right. And so then, you know, sixes, obviously anxiety, right. Generalized anxiety. Uh, sevens, narcissism as well. Some narcissistic features, right. Eights, sort of oppositional, right. Behaviors yeah. and, and nines, uh, more dependent personality issues and i've oftentimes found the enneagram helpful not determinative but helpful you know if I, someone with a particular type comes in i can sort of go yeah you know you're probably a five i mean there's sort of isolation and um you know fair features of your type that could lead to mental health issues and so just to know what they are has that been your experience as well or not oh yeah absolutely it's very helpful to you know it's very helpful if someone knows their type right yes. and then you can get a sense of um, whether or not to, they've applied that to try and, you know, do some sort of like self-examination. But I've had so many instances that's really kind of sped up the work where, where, that I've done with people when they've done Enneagram work and you ask them about it. Um, this happened recently to me where, you know, a, a guy was explaining to me his kind of entire childhood was a mystery to him the dynamic that was going on between his um, his mother and father and his and his brother. And it turns out, of course, to make a long story short, there was trauma that was not, or there was abuse, right, that was not disclosed. Nobody knew about it or, or, or whatever. And then there was the kind of major fallout. But when he discovered the Enneagram, right, then he was able to go back 
and see it through that lens. And it helped him understand and it helped him really already be on the road towards not only accepting what had happened, but being able to also forgive the people mm. in his family for how they were, right? It, it, it opened up um, a real space uh, for grace to, to be present. And so then in our work, it's like because of that, because he'd already discovered this tool and put it at work, it, it, it kind of puts the work that we're doing like on warp speed. So yeah. to speak. Yeah. And so it's it's one of those things too, like I can't help myself. I I don't do it all the time, but a lot of times it's it's almost become part of my intake where it's like I wanna know, like, have you done any work with DNA Graham? Do you know? And if and if they haven't, it's almost like one of those tools that's like go try it out. Um it it's never gonna hurt you. Right. It can only help, right? It might not hit everybody, but it's one of those deals that it's like, and I feel like there are very few things like this in the kind of therapeutic world where I can say, like, I, go try it. Like, it, it will do no harm, and it right. might, in fact, actually just really speed up what we're going to do. Yes. And, yeah. yeah, and that's what I like about it. You know, I know some some you know, treatment centers now, which as part of their initial intake, in addition to, you know, there's a lot of other instruments that are used, but they use the Enneagram uh, early on because for them uh, as a treatment team, it's like it accelerates the knowledge of the client uh, in a way that um, would take them maybe a month, 30 days, 90 days, 60 days into treatment to realize the constellation uh, right. of, of things going on Absolutely. beneath the surface, then they can really get down to helping the person. And the person now has a language mm-hmm. to talk about. Right. right. As long as you got to keep telling them, this is this isn't the whole of it, right. just right. a piece of it. It's a good conversation starter, this Enneagram, but it's not the... You know the magical mystery decoder of your interior landscape. It's just a you know one flashlight among many, kind of figuring out what's going on in there. You know, it's a tool. But can I say something? Sure. A part of part of where it helped me too was understanding that my you know great sin or, or weakness or or whatever we want to call it as a two is pride. Yes. And so for other twos, if there are other twos listening, what kept me uh, initially from like uh when i first discovered the enneagram and i discovered it through you i mean it was with you the popularity of your mm-hmm. book and, and i read it and enjoyed it but i resisted this notion because i always resist this notion of someone categorizing me mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. i would the way that i heard the enneagram being spoken about it, it was that like you are a three like you are a two like you are a five and so you know, anytime you're reading about it, it's like, well, you know, some of this seems to apply, but some of this doesn't. And I don't want this to like, sort of like, you know, maybe um, I'm too unique for this, right? I can't, maybe this can help all these other people, but 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 not quite me because I can't be wholly defined. See, that was just my misunderstanding of what it is. And so if like you have that reaction to it, I, I want people to really hear what it is we're saying here is that we're not saying it's the sum all, you know, the be all. It's just, it's just a lens and it's one piece, albeit a very, very powerful one, but no one is attempting to sum up your identity and your existence by one of these numbers. And, 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 and so I had to get you know, beyond that and help un- understand that, but it was my pride, I think, that, that really mm. kept me from, from allowing it 
to do its work on me. Yes, yes. Uh, in your own personal journey of healing, of recovery from, you know, issues of uh, around mental health and also just personal, the you know, the, the longing for completeness, right? I mean, that's the word I like. I think mm. uh, in, in some ways, um, I, I, I tend to sort of think about the human condition less in the language of sin and more in the language of incompleteness, mm. you know, that we, we wrestle with a sense of, you know, and then we come up with all kinds of strategies to cope with the, 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 the dis-ease that arises in a world where you, in which you feel incomplete. Yeah. Um, yeah, so what, how has the Enneagram been helpful to you? Like just on your yeah. own personal journey, forget about your practice. What about you? Yeah, for me, you know, I, um, it helps me. I just want to be loved for who I am, mm -hmm. not, not for what I can provide or what kind of song and dance I can perform or what kind of peace I, you know, I can keep among, uh, you know, the people. And that's, going to constantly be you know a battle and a journey for me because I was that middle child who gained some self-worth by being the child who didn't cause any problems who got his homework done made the teacher proud all of those sorts of things and for for me as the the older that I get truly having experienced that kind of death to the first half of my life um, I feel fortunate that that I think that happened a little, a little earlier, maybe for me than for a lot of folks. Although, kind of mid thirties is about you know where where it breaks down for 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 a lot of people. But my journey is just to try and be as authentic as I can and allow myself to be seen and 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 loved uh, for that. And the big way that the Enneagram is helping me with that is that I have a lot of difficulty stating my own needs mm -hmm. because I feel like, um, if I express my needs, then I'm somehow less of that person that is providing a service to other people. Mm -hmm. And the more that I open up about it, right. And this, where here's where I can specifically see it. My, my wife and I, she's okay with me saying this, right? We've, we've been doing uh, marriage therapy now for, for a few years together. We did, we did individual work for a long time, but then never thought to, to get together and do it. Right. And so we've been doing that. And about six months ago, we were in a particularly kind of difficult spot with something. And the therapist looked at me and she said, Ryan, what is it that you, what is it that you need you know, right now? And that's a question, right, that I ask the clients every day of my life, right, professionally. And when she asked me that, I knew, I knew, like, deep down what it was that I needed. But we probably sat there in silence for the greater part of five minutes because I could not reach down into my chest and pull it out and externalize the need. And even when I started to do it, the way that it was coming out was so clumsy and kind of half-baked and, and not really honest. I was trying to make it sound better than it was because I just still didn't want to just show myself. 
I didn't mm. want to say like, this is what I actually need. And I understand that maybe that makes me look less attractive or less successful or whatever it is, but here's what I need. And so my journey is in my own personal life, showing up every day, desperately trying to put those needs on display when appropriate and knowing that I am a child of God and that that's okay. And the people who love me are going to love me even more. And I'm going to be more at peace if I can express my needs and not just keep that down and, um, and try to be the good shiny kind of, kind of kid. It's just, that's my personal journey right now. Mm. Well, Ryan, um, you're describing the the journey I hope all twos take, right? Uh, mm. Because I think that part of the the journey uh, for the two is um, uh, overcoming the fear of being unloved, uh, mm-hmm. of being unworthy of relationship, and uh, this deep desire. This just a it's so simple for twos. It's just this desire to be liked. Yeah, you know, yeah, it's pretty simple. I just want to be it's, liked, but the yeah. str- but the strategy, the unhealthy strategy, is calculated giving. You know, yeah. it, it's this uh, kind of this sort of manipulative giving. I, I'll take care of you if you'll take mm-hmm. care of me without my needing to ask you to do it. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. And and then also to to do what you just said, which is to express well to identify and then to express personal needs uh, despite the anxiety that you might possibly be rejected and humiliated for even having personal needs right that's exactly right yeah so that's the journey I hope all twos take go ahead no yeah yeah yeah. I was gonna say that's the real that's the real fear there because I want to be liked and I want to be loved so much that I think that if I minimize my needs, or in fact, if I can just somehow exist without them, then that's going to increase my odds, right, of, 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 of being loved and being accepted, especially if I have no needs, but I'm always attending to your needs, then that's going to put me in this really great spot. But what it ends up doing, I've noticed the same thing in my marriage. It happened like with the church. I end up resenting my wife because I look at her and I cannot believe that she doesn't know what I that she doesn't know what I need, and that mm. she hasn't come to try and pay attention to my needs in the way that I have with her, but I have not given her a chance not not a chance in hell at, at possibly even knowing what those are because I'm not brave enough to talk about them. Mm. Right? Wow, that's all it's good ridiculous. stuff right that's there, really man. Ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, that's, that was juicy, wasn't it? We got I, a lot of juice in that. I answer. got some chill bumps on that one. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of good passion in there too. Yeah, man. Oh, was. Hey, if you tell, I struggle here, man. Even like right now, as we're saying this, I'm thinking of the things that like I know need to be said, mm-hmm. and I know that if I don't, I, I end up suffering. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna suffer. I'm gonna suffer more. So you're just keeping yourself again. I find that you know we keep ourselves trapped. We all we want this abundant life but it's our own fear, right? We're the only ones holding us back from walking into it. Yes. And you're, you're really, you're described, you, you mentioned that, you know, kind of at the, the midpoint of life, oftentimes, uh, our self made stories about who we are and how we think the world works begin to explode. They, they, they aren't working, right? 
But the problem is, rather than face the pain, lots of types on the Enneagram just double down on the the strategies of their type, right? Until they finally really tank, Uh right? Until they really exhaust it, right? And uh, if you can help people recognize the shadow side of their type, on the strategy they're doubling down on and the very fact that it's actually going to prevent them from getting what they want versus get what they want. You know, until that moment comes, it's, uh, it's, it's pretty hard to get people to jump out of things like depression, anxiety, m- marriages falling apart, uh, jobs, uh, tank, you know, the list goes on, yeah. you know, uh, just a, a sense of, discontent with their lives as, as Carl Jung would say feeling like they're walking around in shoes that pinch they're too small mm. you know? gosh that's good yeah that their that's shoes good. are pinching well uh, everybody listen to me I want you to check out Ryan Casey Waller's book depression anxiety and other things we don't want to talk about on his socials Ryan Casey Waller that's W-A-L-L-E-R on Instagram Twitter and Facebook Ryan, we are so glad you were on the show today. We love it, too, when we have male twos on the show. Mm-hmm. I don't know why it is it's so hard for us to get male twos. We've had a couple, but but it's they're harder to find sometimes, yeah. aren't yeah. they? Which they're is great when they show up. They're they great belly. when they show up, yeah. especially when they show up as self-aware as Ryan right. showed up, yeah. right? Well, hey, we like and approve of you. If that's any help, <laughs> it's so it's so embarrassing to admit how much I want to hear you say that. <laughs> well, that's we can awesome. validate you all day long, man. But unfortunately, we got to hop off. You got to hop off. You got clients that are waiting, I'm yeah. sure. And uh, thank you so much for coming on Typology. And again, everybody, check out this new book of of Ryan's. I think you're going to find it uh, incredibly help for you depression anxiety and other things we don't want to talk about Mm. anthony yes sir with you there's nothing i don't want to talk about (laughs) feel the same about you and i want to give to you and to all of our listeners these words may you have love may you have joy may you have peace may you have healing may you have rest we'll talk to you next time 